another episode of Sacred Cinema. I am your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the next half an hour here on 2XX98.3 FM People Powered Radio. This week's episode is entitled The Monstrous Feminine. Last week we looked at the cowardly masculine archetype and it only makes sense that we flip that a little bit and look at what I call the monstrous feminine archetype. It's not uh, typically, it's not like the devouring mother, like a expression that's const- commonly used in talking about art and literature and culture and things like that. But I've, I've, I've drawn a link between a couple of films that we're, all going, to talk, that we're going to talk about this week where monstrosity is an associated theme or it's a thing that's associated with femininity. And as we talked about last week, when we, when we use words like masculine and feminine, we're not talking about men and women as such, but masculine and feminine traits in, in whatever way you understand that to mean. Well, I think we all kind of... Under, we're going to get very Derridian this week, by the way, in terms of not understanding that these concepts and words, you know, we can't really describe what they mean. But I think you kind of understand what I mean when I say the word feminine, don't you? Um, and very conveniently and coincidentally, although it may be just a product of the culture and hive-mindedness, but I just saw... Um, a, a new film, a new French film called Saint Omer, uh, directed by uh, Alice Diop, uh, which is going to be released to Australian cinemas uh, very soon on the 25th of May. And it so perfectly, uh, I, I think it's so perfectly, um, it, it's the perfect complement to some of the things we talked about in Bo is Afraid last week and in, in terms of the devouring mother and some of those discussions around the devouring mother. Um, and I also think it, it, it really does work really well with um, After Sun, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago as well. Between those three films, I think, and it says something about the culture, doesn't it, that, that some of the big films coming out at the moment are all about relationships with parents and and different intergenerational relationships and how certain emotional uh, dynamics and how we present ourselves to our children and vice versa can really shape us and make us feel all sorts of anxieties and all sorts of things. But that's all the good stuff we're going to get into this week. Um, but in talking about the monstrous feminine specifically, uh, we're going to start Start off with Shrek uh, from 2001, directed by Andrew Adamson and Vicky Jensen. We're then going to move on to Monster from 2003, uh, the one starring Charlize Theron, uh, <laughs> directed by Patty Jenkins. And then we're going to finish off with Saint Omer, directed by Alice Diop. But let's get started now with Shrek uh, from 2001. So you've probably all seen Shrek. Um, I'm going to focus specifically on the relationship he has with Princess Fiona, obviously, because we're talking about monsters and feminine figures. Um, and we're going to focus specifically on him falling in love with a princess who, in turn, we all know. If you haven't seen Shrek by now, what have you been doing? Everyone's seen Shrek at least a billion times. Um, but focusing specifically on the fact that she, in turn, is an ogre by night and the relationship, the impact the relationship has and the, and, you know, the kiss and then her becoming actually a full-time time ogre um and i'm conscious that you know one of the reasons why we haven't done shrek on the show before is because everyone on the internet has talked about shrek and we don't really need to talk too much about how it uses the classic disney-esque tropes to subvert the typical fairy tale you know there's no images of princesses being swept off their feet by prince charming rather they use those images and 
subvert them. It's an ugly ogre, very clumsily rescuing a princess, you know, throwing her over his shoulder and not kissing her, all that sort of thing. And she herself is not a typical princess. Um, and he doesn't do it because he wants her hand in marriage, but he does it for selfish reasons for his land and all sorts of things that we could do the Marxist reading of this film if we wanted to. Uh, we could talk about that for hours. The, the main point I want to make this week is how, despite the fact that it's subverting these very archetypal fairy tale tropes, I actually think the film is very archetypal uh, in the end. It's just using uh, 21st century vocabulary or 21st century imagery through a 21st century lens, let's say. So if we talk about the princess archetype very broadly, right, um, you know, um, and, and, and I actually think that most of the princess are, um, stories that we know from fairy tales uh, are really promoting anti-sanitization, right? They're not trying to depict princesses as perfect, beautiful young maidens, but rather about them embracing kind of the dirty elements of existence, despite what Kira Knightley and a lot of celebrities have said about these kinds of stories. I think they're dead wrong on all this. So we've talked about this a lot on the show before. Um, Beauty and the Beast being the best example is really about embracing one's inner beast, embracing one's inner masculine as a means of individuation. Similarly, you've got something like um, Sleeping Beauty, which is, again, this sort of anti overprotection thing, kind of similar to Bo is Afraid in a way, where, you know, life is full of pricks and eventually you're going to prick your finger on something uh, and you don't want to leave it too long to the point that you prick your finger on the spindle, uh, on, prick your finger on the spindle that conks you out and it requires a very uh, dire situation. Now, of course, you've got things like dragons and, and in Little Red Riding Hood, you've got the wolf and it's often a Prince Charming that slays those sorts of things. Um, but I, I think if we're looking at them all broadly, what, what, that, what these stories are really about is accepting that the road to you know, adulthood, maturation, individuation, becoming whole, becoming or pushing towards the idyllic is riddled with big, bad, scary beasts, right? We're all going to have to um, learn how to overcome big, bad, scary beasts. And um, the, the prince, yes, may be a masculine figure, uh, but it's not necessarily men in general, as we talked about a second ago. But it, it's more like, I think a better way to think about it is like if you listen to or watch one of these stories and you identify with one of the given characters, let's say you, you hear the story Sleeping Beauty and you identify with Sleeping Beauty, that doesn't mean that the road to your individuation is to await a prince charming to come and kiss you, but rather it's 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 encouraging you to access your your inner prince charming, that inner masculine trait that that you know that the celebrities these days and, and people push for now that we, we need to see women uh, in films being more uh, you know taking life by the scruff of its neck and, and fighting and there's lots of films now of women punching people and fighting people. Those are those aren't going those aren't um, those two things don't go against each other. That's what these stories are actually about. It's just that the, the characters are rather multiple iterations of a one given soul. They're not, they're not all like in a rigid way, um, siphoned off and categorized into male characters and female characters, but rather um, they're all you and you have to pick the ones that you need to be giving a little bit more love and attention to in your own life and embracing those things more. And this is exactly what happens in Shrek, right? So I, this is why I think it's just the same thing, but just in 21st century language where we have, um, you know, the moral of the story being that Fiona becomes individuated by embracing her inner ogre. And if, even as a five-year-old, you can pick up on that, that at the end of the film, she, you know, she is beautiful by accepting her inner monster. But it's not that Shrek 
is the one that because you know it, it's not that it's not that Shrek because he's a monster. He's an you know he saves her. He, she becomes individuated by marrying him. Uh, it's be becoming more like him or embracing the part of her that is like him. Um, so she's not just marrying Shrek because he's an ogre and he will make up for her desi- her deficits as she has as a, as a maiden, but rather she embraces her inner Shrek. Um, but in sort of saying that 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 has an archetypal energy to it, the the flaw in Shrek is that it, you know uh, it's in the world of the archetypal, which it kind of admits itself by being so subversive and everything. Um, but that doesn't really quite get to the reality of the situation. The problem with archetypal stories is we're dealing with idyllic archetypal characters who are kind of they exhaust themselves to a state of perfection by the end of the film. We know that life isn't like that. So let's have a look at the monstrous feminine in a, in a more realistic, down to earth level sense and at this point I think it's time that we move on to our next film before we do just remind you I listen to 2XX 98.3 FM people powered radio I'm your host Jimmy Bernasconi for the remainder of this half hour session be sure to jump onto our website to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring the show that would be very much appreciated but moving on now to Monster directed by Patty Jenkins and this one centers on Aileen uh, Warnos, who is a real-life serial killer. Uh, she's played by Charlize Theron in this film. And um, basically her story is that she was a sex worker from like the age of like 11 or something terrible, uh, ends up being a murderer and kills these guys and steals their money and that sort of thing. And, you know, no doubt this film definitely fleshes out um, you know the monstrosity uh, well it's called monster for goodness sake but um, you know she's a killer she kills people there's, there's clearly a monster element to it but where this film maybe takes another step further is the, it, it kind of I think it, at the very least it opens the the idea opens the door to the idea that she isn't a monster just because she's embracing her inner monster but rather life has belted her around to the point that she's become a bit more of a monster than she ought to be. So there, there is a point at which you can embrace the monster, the inner monster too much, or the inner monster can come out too much despite being a, a feminine figure. Um, and, but, but, but we're going to get into more of that in a second. I firstly want to get into the fact that um, the film itself kind of shows us how hard it is to sanitize the monstrous feminine. So in Shrek... For example, even though she looks like a, even though she looks like an ogre at the end, it's it's an animated film, and she kind of got has nice eyelashes, and she's wearing a dress, and it's, it's Cameron Diaz's voice, and she, she, you know, it's it's um it's accessible, it's something that we can digest and not have a, a, a gross feeling in our tummy, right? Um, this film, and it's it's really interesting how they use Charlie Theron, who's like famously very attractive. This film really shows, and not just the character, but the film itself. We'll flesh that out in a second, but shows how hard it is to sanitize the monster feminine it, it she can't it, it can't really be glorified the things she's doing you know in, in other films murder and sex and things can be glorified they can be sexified and eroticized that doesn't really happen in this film um there are sex scenes in the film there's nudity in the film there's there's shooting and 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 criminal behavior that you might see in like um narcos or breaking bad which you know young boys love but this film isn't it's not fun to watch. And it made me think about whether this film will st- stand the test of time. I mean, I don't really think this is a film that a lot of people still talk about. And it reminded me a lot of uh, what we talked about. We've talked a lot about Sean Baker's films on this show because I think he is a really important director, particularly about in, in terms of the films that he's making. Um, social realism, I just I think in general, but specifically in the context of modern America, um, like as amazing as these films are, these social realist films are, particularly Vegas, I mean, uh, they're so hard to watch that you wonder if people will ever have the guts to go back to them as the years 
pass on. And this is a real tragedy, and we've talked about this a lot on the show before, because this sort of unsanitized, tough and unsexy reality that's riddled with crime and poverty and, and drugs, and like real drugs, not party drugs, like meth and, 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 and horrible horrible situations that you see people living in modern po- po- impoverished situations that that's sort of like how half at least half the world lives but but we never actually see that and that does call back a little bit to shrek being like the idea of like you know we're sick of seeing these fairy tales let's see the real the real story but it, but even still it's still sanitized to a degree but you know films like this are kind of like this, you know this is happening to like over 50 percent of the world's population but very few films actually talk about this <coughs> And in talking about the film itself and whether the film itself will stand the test of time, we're going to get a little bit sort of meta-modern here, but like I think that it's not only that the character uh, herself is unpleasant and hard to watch, and, and then that and that says something about the monstrous feminine itself, which we've which we've talked about, but but the film watching experience is unpleasant and hard to do as an audience member sitting on your couch at home, which says something about the onlooker and our capacity. Um, and not necessarily in terms of accepting people in different circumstances, but but it says something about you know whether we're actually willing to do the work that's necessary to do something about this kind of thing. Like it's not only that we need to show concern, like you know in in a in a conversation at a dinner party about how other people live and how difficult their lives are, uh, and how their inner monster is taking over. But but we've actually got to do the work to fix those things, and that kind of involves watching movies like this and watching the news and and actually researching up on this sort of thing, which is, can be very unpleasant. It actually makes me very suspicious, and this is a little bit controversial, but it makes me a little suspicious of the sort of the sex positive movement and the anti-poverty porn movement which if you're not sure aware of those are it's they're all kind of about like dignifying people that are in those industries and are in those situations in a way and not just sort of leering at them and going oh these poor things are so difficult and 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 the the idea is a noble one which is that we want to dignify these people and also like we we don't want to exploit people for you know and, and, and make a circus out of poverty but at the same time the cynic in me kind of thinks that that's a very that's an awfully convenient way for us to just turn a blind eye and feel good about turning a blind eye to the things um, that are going to take a lot of effort to fix. I, I think I think we've talked about this on the show, but I've always found it really interesting that when I was growing up, when I was like in the, probably around like the early 2000s, I remember like every second ad on TV was like an Oxfam ad or like a World Vision ad and they would be showing like kids in starving situations. And then maybe it's because there aren't starving kids anymore, but I doubt that's the reason. Um, and now when we see a lot of sort of like social movement stuff on social media and things like that, it's it's very often problems in the first world, whether it's about like certain inequalities in, in, in the first world and things like that. Whereas I kind of wonder, have we just used this this, this poverty porn um, ideology as just a means to pretend that it's okay for us not to care about all these things that are happening on the other side? I've had conversations with people about this, and like, well, why, you know, I don't want to do things about things that I can't impact. And it's like, well, you you know, you can impact those things. You, you watch these films, you can watch these documentaries, you can donate to those causes. I actually feel that it's actually that it, it makes us feel very, very unwell and very sick when we look at stuff like this. And that's why films like this may not um, tend to, uh, stand the test of time. But there's a whole added element to this film as well, which is like it's not only tragic that she's in this situation, but as I said before, it kind of opens the door to the fact that it's it's not necessarily her fault that she is that monstrous in this film. Like the the film, um, it it does show that she's. Um, 
there's a lot of dialogue about you know the significance of circumstance which she's talking to the Bruce Dern character and she's talking about um, people don't understand circumstance and stuff like that and then she also she says this line where she says that um, she never really felt like she had a chance in life and stuff like that and like I I don't mean to say that you know people um, shouldn't have some degree of responsibility for their own situations in life but like let's be realistic if you come from a place like that at that lower point on the socioeconomic ladder i mean this seems sort of sort of silly to say it's so obvious it's almost impossible to to pull yourself up from that in from at a certain point and and it's very clear that it's your the external circumstances that are really doing the the, the bulk of the bulk of the lifting or, or sorry, the bulk of the pushing down there and and, and that we, you know we can look at a person like that and think oh how horrible how monstrous you know she's a serial killer at the end of the day i don't mean to say that she uh, she you know she ought to be fully forgiven or, or whatever but i sort of am saying that as i say like you know what other choice did she have him in then put it would have been some mental illness issues and, and all that sort of thing and, and, a, and a terrible life and you know she talks about how bad her father was and all the men that, you know, treated her terribly that we see in the film and that kind of thing. And I think the film does a good job of, of, of showing her, you know, um, of there being some kind of other vulnerable people that she is confronted uh, to exploit and uh, to not to exploit, but who aren't necessarily trying to exploit her. But, but you know, the, the, she, she feels apprehensive about killing, let's put it that way. Um, so there is an added layer to this. But but we, it, it almost makes it a little bit more convenient for us to feel sorry for her when we don't blame, when we can't blame her for that. It kind of opens the door to another question. All right, let's say you have to, you do have someone in a very in a situation where the inner monster has taken over and they've done some very bad things, even murder someone. But there isn't necessarily someone to blame for it, right? Like, like there's, there's a limit, isn't there? A point where we just go, you know, you know, bad things happen to everybody, but at some level you have to be sort of responsible for your own life. What if you're in that sort of situation? Well, I think we should finish off now with St. Omer from 2022. I'm not saying it necessarily is that situation, but I think it definitely explores that kind of situation, at least in one aspect. So if you don't know much about this film, and I doubt that many people do because it hasn't actually come out yet, but um, it centers on a court case, um, and, and this is something that happened in real life as well, where um, there's, a, there's a woman who, uh, who admits to drowning her child, and um, the, the court has to decide whether she's guilty of, of murder, and she actually says, I physically did the act of, of drowning my child. And sort of on one level, and I kind of like a simplistic level, what we can say is that um, it's a film that's similar to Monster where it's like, well, you know, how do we deal with these situations where someone does something really bad but it's kind of not their fault and they're a victim of circumstance? And that's lifted up by the by the fact that she's an immigrant who's not actually from France. She's this young woman that's gone over to study um, from Senegal and, uh, you know, it's difficult living in the big, the big city kind of thing. And then there's also this weird older guy, the, the father of the child in question, who we never really figure him out, but, we you know, we make a sort of, dare I say prejudicial assumption that he's probably the one to blame really here because it usually is the older white man if, if in a movie from 2022 but we never really figure him out either and there's some mention to her strict parents being part of the reason why she is the way she is but that's also not that bad to have strict parents and the, the judge is kind of like well it sounds like I had a pretty good childhood and we get to a point where we start to think in the film and I should say if you do go see this film and I employ you because I loved it so much the first half I think is a little bit slow but it needs to be that slow because we need to sort of slowly put these little pieces together and be a bit lost in this story and then it just comes it just rams home so well like the, the back end of this film is just so strong um, so I mean I really love this movie 
Um, but we sort of get to this place maybe around the middle of the film. We go, yeah, I don't know if there is one, one particular person that we can really blame for this. Like maybe there is, but it's not necessarily clear to us. And that's kind of like life, like, particularly in, in the modern world where we have, you know, a, a culture of, of, of you know, bl- like a blame culture and figuring out who to cancel for certain things. And it's all very, you know, we're hearing it through multiple different media lenses. It's very hard to know exactly who's to blame in a lot of situations if we don't know the person closely and even if we are, even if we do. Um, and, and I think this is where the film is really innovative and clever because I think this is almost where modern feminism fails a little bit. And, and and the film lights a very new, very insightful fire around this, which is which is kind of like, what happens um, if if you're in a situation where maybe there isn't an obvious person to blame when someone does something terrible, and maybe it is actually the person that did it, uh, and, and and particularly in the case of of, of, of a woman drowning her her, her child, um, it's much easier to blame you know the, the husband or something like that. that. That sort of fits better in with the culture. But what if it is the case that she just does it because? And this is where the film is so strong is because it draws a parallel here because this is a very extreme act and, you know, it's quite abstract at that point. You might be like, thinking like Jimmy, look, if someone drowns a child, they go to jail. There's no two, two ways about it. But what the film does very cleverly is it draws a parallel to the everyday mother-daughter relationship and the protagonist of this film is uh, this this novelist um, lecturer who's like researching the case and she keeps relating to her own relationship with her own mother and also she's pregnant and she's going to have a child as well. And so throughout this whole film, she's going, well, she's like freaking out about motherhood and, and her own relationships and being like, well, how do I know I'm not going to be like this? And, and and why was my mother, why do I feel like my mother would have done this to me? And why, you know, why do I feel like that? And, that? and this is where... Um, the film hits home because we we feel this, uh, even though we, we weren't drowned by our own mothers, um, this, you know, we all felt like our mother has hated us at some point in our life or we've been confused about why she spoke to us a certain way or did certain things. And so what I personally think the film ought to be about when people watch it, and apologies if this is, sounds very obvious maybe to, to our female listeners, but sort of the life of a mother is indescribably complicated. Right, it's indescribably crazy, and, and and in breaking that down, let's firstly talk about this idea of, of, of the concept of indescribability or, or inarticulable, the inarticulable nature of of motherhood specifically. But you know, this is certainly a concept that is in excess of words, but 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 also like motherhood itself is in excess of words, and we're going to get as I said before, we're going to get very Derridian, and and if you're not familiar with the, the philosophy of Jacques Derrida. I mean, I'm not an expert on him or anything, but I guess at the, at the corner of what at the core of what he does is he, he was talking about breaking down habitual dichotomies. And in this in this film, we do have these dichotomies. The dichotomies being explored are obviously like mothers and daughters or mothers and children, uh, but love and hate. Um, and we talked a lot about this in uh, last week. When we talked about the assassination of Jesse James. How very quickly, you know, one's love or an obsession with someone can very quickly transition to hatred and contempt for them. Um, and and I, I didn't write this down when I saw the film. I really should have, but I'm pretty sure they talk about the concept of sublimation um, in the at the start of the film when she's when the protagonist is giving a lecture. I'm going to pull this together in a second. I know it's a bit scattered at the moment, but I'll pull it together. Um, and if you're not aware what sublimation is, like I guess I know like a basic dictionary definition. It's sort of the diversion of an energy um, of some biological impulse impulse from its immediate goal to one that's a bit more acceptable uh, in society. In a philosophical sense, I suppose we could basically say that it's um, transforming a base or instinctual impulse 
into a higher or more refined form. So as a mother, you might have all sorts of instinctual impulses and as a daughter as well. And, and, and we struggle to sometimes transform those into a more refined, more socially acceptable way of dealing with things. Now, according to Derrida, sublimation is not a straightforward process of elevation or purification, but it involves a, a complex interplay. There's an interplay between the forces and desires uh, that we know would otherwise see is competing. Um, the very idea of a pure or elevated form is already contaminated by the traces of the base impulse that we're seeking to transcend. So in other words, there isn't really a clear boundary between what we might call the base, like a base impulse, and the sublime, the, the socially acceptable, the idyllic uh, action. Rather, it's a constant intermingling and exchange between our base impulses and the, the kind of things that society accepts and the things that we want to do. So relating that back to the mother-child relationship, we've always got these complex interplays between the two. There's always traces of one in another, right? The, the, the things that a mother does and the things that a daughter does are always interplaying against each other. What, what a mother does is kind of what the, the daughter's caused her to do and vice versa. Um, you know, children often feel that they're the result of their mother. Uh, parents often feel that, they, that you know, they're, they're tired and stressed and they can't work hard or they can't exercise because of their children. We're constantly in a state of interplay. Right. And I'm not just saying this. I'm not just going up. It's actually dealt with in the film on like a scientific level and they talk about how hormones and chemicals stay within each other's bodies and the mother and the child actually like like parts of them the, the parts of the you know the chemicals from one like linger in the organs till death of the other one and there's actually a really interesting science about that if you want to look into it but the second point about this uh, about the, the, that that motherhood being complicated and crazy on that sort of indescribable level that we've just fleshed out with you know, talking about sublimation, things like that. It, it, this film kind of does lift up the idea that there is kind of an undeniable or inevitable, almost um, like unavoidable monstrous nature uh, in the in the matriarchal feminine or, or in the mother, I suppose. Um, I, I, and this is what I mean by the film make this perfect sandwich between Beau is afraid and after son. Um, you know, Bo is afraid being you know, the, 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 the sort of undesirability of a devouring mother and after son being this kind of like, what, what was my father doing that whole time? Did he love me? Did he care about what was going on in his head? I think this film is kind of like, what's going in the head of a mother that makes me feel like she doesn't love me? And, and rather than maybe seeing the child as the victim here going, well, hang on, what was actually going on in her head? What's going on in her body? And if we think about pregnancy specifically, which is what this film definitely delves into a lot. Pregnancy is a wild ride, right? What do we expect? Like, think about all the hormones going through a mother's body, you know, things like postnatal depression, growing a whole human being inside of you. I guess what, what the film is getting at is that embracing the inner monster is not simply a matter of just, you know, eating ice cream when we've got cravings and, and not feeling guilty about it. It's, it's embracing this wild ride, this profoundly wild ride that one undergoes when living inside the female body, particularly a pregnant mother's body, just think about how wild it is physiologically. And, and this isn't just me being old-fashioned and going back and saying things, you know, women and men are different and women have particular hormones going. You know, the, the film actually is is brave enough to dive into this stuff. And I think it's actually being very dialectical. I think it's 
taking little ideas from from sociological and, 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 and feminist theory and, and things all throughout the decades and, and really arriving in a very new and exciting place. But but what does that mean? I mean, we can we can understand if we ourselves might be a pregnant mother, that's something that we can understand that, you know, I'm on a wild ride. I need to accept that that's part of who I am and not feel guilty about the crazy things that I might do. But what does that mean for the rest of us looking on, particularly children, but namely daughters who, who maybe have felt unloved by their mothers, which is really at the core of this film. Well, let's tie everything together this week, shall we? At the start, we talked about how we need to learn to embrace our inner monster, but this is much easier said than done in reality. And we can feel a bit of like a, it can feel like a bit of a cop-out as well when considering that monsters are often shaped by the world around us. And it's often, you know, someone else should be blamed. Maybe it's like a, a you know, a, a crazy or dangerous man that has, has made a, a, you know, a, a feminine figure more monstrous. But notwithstanding that, maybe we just need to accept that our, that our relationships with with the monstrous feminine figures in our lives, particularly our mothers, they, they even even if they're not even if they can't blame someone else, even if they are just inherently a little bit monstrous, maybe we shouldn't categorize them in such clear clear cut buckets, right? Maybe we shouldn't use language like that. Maybe need we need to be a little bit more open to the idea that what we immediately to us we assume to be acts of monstrosity or acts of hate are actually weirdly an act of love. And, and and this could even go the other way as well. It kind of calls back to what we talked about when we did Ladybird. But either way, it seems that we that we ought not to try to become beautiful by transcending our monstrous traits, but but by seeing the beauty in our monstrosity. Well, that's all we've got time for, unfortunately, this week on Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM, people-powered radio. Stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on 2XX. But I've been your host, Jimmy Berners-Gain, and we'll see you again next week.